Hey there, welcome to another edition of Close to the Vest. My name is Arthur Ettinger, and this is going to be a doozy. Um, today's episode, we are talking about substance abuse. And the reality is, in a lot of our divorce cases, uh, matrimonial lawyers have to deal with uh, substance abuse issues, especially uh, in custody cases. And I am really, really lucky to have in the studio today, Stephen Pamer of Pamer and Associates. Steve, thanks so much for coming. Thank you for having me. So there's a lot to talk about. You got a lot of props here. Um, first and foremost, I just want to understand, you know, tell the audience and the listeners who is St Stephen Pamer and, um, and, and what is Pamer and Associates? Pamer Associates is a full-service drug and alcohol testing and monitoring firm. We um, started, I, the business started probably 16, 17 years ago by accident. Um, I was doing clinical work and was with a, I was working as a social worker in a high school. And the kids were always talking about how they were able to beat urine tests when they were going for their, if they had a job and they were going for a pre-employment test. So I was doing some clinical work and the uh, mother of this young man I was seeing spoke with me after the session and she was commenting that she thought he was still using. Uh, I agreed with her. Right. Because I had heard all of this about beating the urine test, I suggested to the mother that we do a hair test. Now, at the time, I had no idea what a hair test was or how to do it, uh, but I had heard that they were much more, quote unquote, reliable. She said, that's a great idea. Uh, we did one. He was positive. We found out that he was still using. And in fact, his, his usage had moved on from uh, marijuana to cocaine. She happened to be an attorney. Wow. And she said to me, do you do this for all of your clients or only the ones that you're seeing? And I said, I do them for everybody. You let me know. And uh, that's really how this business started. Uh, otherwise, I've been doing substance abuse prevention and treatment in one form or another uh, for about the last 20 years. So just so everybody listening uh, understands, um, and I probably didn't give it, you know, give you um, enough credit when we first started, you are, you know, you are the guy, it, 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 you know, if not one of on a short list of the guys that the courts regularly use when there are allegations of substance abuse and you do the screening and the testing, uh, the monitoring. And oftentimes you also do evaluations. Um, so let's talk about, you know, the different types of testing. Can you elaborate on that? Absolutely. Um, the first question I ever ask when I'm presented with a situation with a case is what are we trying to achieve here? You know, what is our goal from doing the monitoring? Now I do presentations quite frequently and when I'm speaking to attorneys, I often say we have a wonderful opportunity here. Nobody ever comes to you or to me on the wings of victory. Usually when we see people, they're going through a very difficult time in their lives. And that's when people are most susceptible to getting better. When we can act as a catalyst for them to get better. Um, 
nobody recovers from substance abuse because their life is going swimmingly. Uh, recovery is a function of pain. So uh, I always like to try and use these cases as a way to act as an adjunct uh, with treatment for people to get better. The way in which we go about that can get very complicated. And part of the reason that this, that this works is testing and monitoring is, is as much of an art as it is a science. Um, The object is to, Try and, again, act as an adjunct to somebody getting better um, with, with treatment while simultaneously keeping the kids safe, of course. I mean, that's always our primary objective. Sure. Um, there are many different ways to do that, depending on the drug that we're looking for, depending on what the problem is, uh, and, again, depending on what we're trying to achieve. Uh, the list of methods that we can use to monitor somebody is fairly long. Uh, we have, of course, urine testing. Right. We have hair testing. We have sweat testing, uh, which is effectively a patch that goes on somebody, stays there for two weeks, absorbs the sweat. We send the patch to the laboratory, and you're getting 24-7 coverage with that. We have a lot of technology when it comes to alcohol. We have an SL2 device, otherwise known as Soberlink which is a handheld remote breath tester, takes a high resolution photograph of the person as they're blowing into the tube. It then sends the result and the image in real time uh, to our portal and to whomever else we want to set up to receive those results. Uh, We also have for alcohol testing, we have a scram bracelet, which is an an ankle bracelet uh, that reads, takes a reading of transdermal perspiration every half an hour uh, and stores those, so you get 48 readings a day, stores those in the device, sends those results out to, uh, to, a, to a technology, to, to the tech people out in Colorado. They interpret the data and we can see if somebody's been drinking or not. And I'm assuming a bunch of that stuff is here. Yes. Um, so how do, you, um, how do you decide what type of testing is going to, take place or, and, and before, maybe before even asking that, how do you like, what gives rise to you even coming on the scene in a matrimonial? It's a good question. Not a, sometimes it's just accusations, right? Uh, We often see that we often have cases where, we're trying to prove that somebody is not doing something. Sure. Um, we also take history, of course, is very important. Has the person been in a treatment program before? Um, any arrests? Things like that. Um, you know, that, that history matters. You know, we, we say, and, I, and I'll, I'll disclose this now, I'm in recovery myself. Mm. Uh, I have been for 25 years. It's um, amazing. Well, it's, you know, one of the things that's important in order for people to have a better understanding of of substance abuse, and like I said before, I'm no more virtuous than anybody else. I was in enough pain to do something different, period. I tried everything. 
other than stopping. You know, I didn't put together that the drugs and alcohol were what was causing all of these uh, disturbances, if you will, which is a nice way of saying it in my life. So we're in enough pain. That's when we cry out for help. The the problem with substance abuse is that, uh, unfortunately, things happen that you can't get up from, you know, that are, that are unforgivable happen. Um, so, y- you know, that's why these, these cases are, why we have such an opportunity to, um, you know, uh, help somebody sure. or assist in somebody getting better. Um, I don't think I answered your question. I think I forgot your question. At it's this all point. good. Um, so, and so the question was, um, how do you normally, and I can answer it, you know, typically it's somebody like you answered, you know, depending on the scenario, sometimes you come on if let's say there's an allegation on the other side and, uh, I want to make sure I want to prove, uh, a negative, you know, literally. And I want to show that my client is not, um, abusing the way they say. And so I'll call you, we'll set up some testing, whatever you think is appropriate. Um, sometimes you get appointed by the court as a neutral and you're going to speak to the lawyers and then uh, the party or parties and set up some sort of appropriate testing. Or there's maybe already some sort of agreed upon test that's um been agreed upon maybe in court or through the lawyers. And we're just calling you and saying, Hey, Steve, this is what we're doing. And sometimes you may say, Hey, listen, this is a good idea, but have you thought of uh, X, Y, and Z, which is why I really respect you. You're a straight shooter and um, it may not be what my, (laughs) it may not be good for my client, you know, and I'm, trying to advocate for my client as maybe the person who's the substance abuser, but you, your, your main interest is just to get to the truth. And as to, to your point, uh, to, um, make sure that the child is going to be safe, uh, with, uh, in either parent's care. Yeah. I, you know, I tell, I tell clients often, The object here is for me to protect you from anybody saying that you use a drug or you drank uh, while not making your life miserable. And there's, we have so many different options these days that we can do that successfully. Mm. You know, um, we want to cover somebody based in science. You know, one of the issues that I find consistently in this field is there's so much urban legend and I find that people tend to minimize uh, testing and monitoring in terms of, Oh, it's a positive test. So this means this. Right. And making false assumptions that are impacting somebody's life tremendously. Can you speak to those urban myths? (laughs) Absolutely. Um, you know, my, my favorite, uh, we have instant urine testing, uh, instant. You, when you do an instant urine test, yes, it's nice because you're getting a result right then and there. The problem is 
if you have it, if you do an instant urine test and it's negative and you're using proper equipment, we can walk into court and say this test was negative. If it's positive, it has to be confirmed by a laboratory. Um, because there are things, you know, there are medications and herbal remedies, all sure. sorts of things that can be cross-reactive with what's, it's an immunoassay test. It's called these instant tests or sure. immunoassay tests. So I had one case where- So you're talking about like the non-negatives. That that's come. right. We can't even call a positive positive right. after the instant's done. We can call it non-negative. We can call it presumptive positive, but we can't call it positive until it's confirmed. I had a case recently where a gentleman was on probation and was taking several psych medications, and he tested positive for PCP on an instant test or fencyclidine or angel dust. Um, they threw him in jail. Wow. And it wasn't a positive test. We also see uh, on these instant tests, sometimes people will see a faint line. Uh, right. These instant tests work very much like a pregnancy test. You know, if there's two lines, it's sure. negative. If there's one line, it's positive. So they see a faint line and they say, well, because it's a faint line, it's slightly positive or low level positive. Right. It doesn't work like that. Um, What's the period of time when the results from the lab come back? It's usually about two days. Got it. You know, everything is sent to the lab is overnighted. So they, they get it the next day. Typically it takes about two days for the confirmation process. Okay. Turnaround time on all of these things is very fast these days. Um, some of the other things that I find get in the way a little bit are when we talk about levels, if there mm -hmm. were 10 Stephen Pamers in this room, uh, half of them would say that, Level, levels don't matter at all. Half of them would say that levels mean everything. Um, you'd find other people who say it's somewhere in the middle. Um, again, it's, it's as much of an art as a science, and you need to know what you're looking at. You also need to know um, there are some things that testing and monitoring can tell you, but sometimes it's just as important to know what testing and monitoring can't tell you. Yeah, that's great. Um, so, so, you know, we hear these things, of course we hear things like, uh, I tested positive because I was walking by somebody and they were smoking marijuana. Um, I've heard thousands of stories uh, like that and, and worse. Uh, one of the urban myths, urban legends that is true is that when you're in a random testing program, you should not eat poppy seed bagels because you can have a positive urine test from poppy seed bagels. What if you walk by the bagel store? Absolutely not. Okay. If that Just were the case, I'd sure. be positive all the time. Yeah, no, <laughs> absolutely not. Um, so we talk, you talk about levels and you and I've had cases that we've, you know, uh, I've, we've dealt with this issue. Are there certain substances where levels matter and, uh, and other substances where it doesn't? It's a great question. Um, the answer is yes. I say frequently that marijuana is the bane of my existence. Uh, marijuana is, is fat soluble. It's not metabolized the same way most of these other drugs are. Uh, as a result, you can't take a level. If someone tests positive for marijuana, you get a quantitative level. Uh, that level, uh, you and I could ingest the same amount of THC, do the same things, eat the same thing, sleep the same. 
have the same, you know, fat content in our bodies and my level could be five times what yours is. Mm -hmm. So marijuana, you cannot take a level and say uh, low, medium or high. So something like cocaine, for instance, you know, we can take a level and have a fairly good idea about low, medium and high. What drug testing can't do is say, this person used on Wednesday, but not Thursday. Right. That sort of thing. Which so, opens up the door for somebody like myself to say, well, judge, you have no proof. And we often see that depending on what side someone's representing. That, that's right. That's right. I mean, the other issue we run into with drugs frequently is uh, we can't measure impairment. Uh, you mean like the dilution and stuff like that? No, I, I mean, let's again, let's go back to marijuana for a minute. Um, we can tell if somebody's using marijuana. Right. What I, I get phone calls often where they say he has a medical marijuana card. <laughs> yes. But he can't be impaired when he's the custodial parent. I got what you're saying. When you I, when you said impaired at first, I thought you meant is the sample being impaired, which is another topic in and of itself. Which but, is another topic. So now, so, so, and do you deal with that or you're just, your job is to do the testing and then it's the job for the, uh, the lawyers to battle that out. In regards to. The, the impairment, like can somebody, could you get on the, the stand and say, yeah, based on this test, uh, I could say with a certain degree of medical, you know, medical certainty that uh, this person was impaired. While they were the custodial parent, you're saying? Well, if there's a positive and they're impaired. Um, there's some people who say, yeah, uh, I smoke a whole joint and uh, I laugh a lot and I can drive a car. And that, that certainly may, may very well be the case. Um, I certainly wouldn't recommend it, but that very well, well may, that very well may be the case. Um, what gets you impaired may be different from what gets me impaired. Mm -hmm. So if you're, if your test is cocaine positive at a certain level, mine is cocaine positive at a certain level, it's going to affect me differently. And that's, you know, another issue we have in this entire field is that there's so many variables. Um, you know, people develop tolerances. There are people who are in pain management programs, for instance, who are taking 300 milligrams of oxycodone a day and they go about their life. You know, they do what they're supposed to do. They go to work. They, they drive their cars. Um, then they if, may be mixing that oxy with alcohol and various cocktails. They, they may very well be doing that. The point is you and I take 300 milligrams of oxycodone, we're, we're going to stop breathing. Right. So, you know, that level of tolerance in terms of impairment really plays a large role. So let's talk about, I think it's very prevalent in like, especially when you're coming on, there's a lot of different testing, as you pointed out. Um, when is the right test? You know, like, should I get the patch? Should, should we be having the hair follicle, you know, almost every litigant says hair follicle, <laughs> it's gotta be the hair follicle, you know, and each test from my, just from my experience, you know, and having worked with you in the past, um, test for different things and, or is better for one uh, substance over another. And also is for a certain testing period. So can you elaborate? Absolutely. And, and 
I want to clear something up right now, and I'm, I'm glad I have a, a venue to do that. Um, one test is not more accurate or better than any other test. All of these tests are good, are great. All of these tests, if there's a positive, uh, it was there. We can't tell you how it got there, but it was in that sample. The difference between the testing methods is which matrix you use, whether it's hair or urine or sweat, is always going to be window of detection. Um, so, so for instance, a, a urine test with most drugs, most drugs, is going to give us about a three-day window of detection, whereas hair testing, which uh, I, kn I know that people love hair testing, and it is a great test, uh, primarily because it's very hard to, to beat it. Uh, there's no known method yet other than bleaching your hair to the point where it's about to crack off. Haircuts? Haircuts, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, a haircut, and, and I'll get to that because, right. you know, again, even with haircuts, we're talking about window of detection. Um, you know, hair testing is a lifestyle test. A negative hair test does not necessarily mean that somebody hasn't used a drug at all. It's not proof of abstinence. What do you mean by that? Well, hair testing is, is more, is designed to capture uh, drug use on a more regular basis. Now, some drugs are what we call stickier than others. They bind better to the hair shaft than others. Uh, marijuana is not very sticky. I've had people who have admitted to me smoking marijuana two or three times a month, which means if they admitted it to me, it means you probably have to double it uh, and their tests come up negative. Again, doesn't mean that they've been abstinent. It just means that they're not using it on a regular basis. Uh, some would say they're not using it to the point where it's a problem, quote unquote. Um, cocaine, on the other hand, is very sticky. Cocaine you can use once and come up positive on a hair test. Um, but all of these are, are about window of detection. I think it's great to start cases off with a hair test. I think that's a good idea because not only will it tell us what's going on, it'll tell us what's not going on. Again, it won't show, it won't prove abstinence, but a negative hair test will prove the absence of any regular drug use. So there are scenarios, and it, I think it depends also very often on the judge and their experience on these issues. And there are judges who will say, okay, everyone goes out for a hair follicle. And then it comes back and it's negative and that's it. Shut down the issue. But there are, and I think to your point, it's just, that's the beginning of the game. And there still may be, and maybe it's not, maybe it's just bullshit. Oh, you did this. So I'm going to make allegations, even though, you know, for the last to five years, you, we, you've been left home alone, but now all of a sudden we're an index number. So I'm going to go make you take a test. It are there. So what you're saying is now that there's a hair follicle test, then what happens next? Again, we would want to take a good hard look at, at history, uh, see if there's been an issue in the past. Um, assuming that there is, we can put other protections in place. We can put in random urine testing. We, we do random testing programs often. Uh, it's a good method for both sides because on one side you're gonna you're gonna be able to uh, look the the 
the nature, the essence of substance use disorder is the inability to moderate once we start. So let's assume we have a case and we're doing one random urine test per week. We have to put some kind of a number on it. We have to, you know, it's not, it's not fair otherwise. When you um, say we have to put a number, meaning frequency. frequency. Correct. So, and, and random, you know, people often talking, going back to the urban legends, it's so easy to beat a urine test, so on and so forth. Uh, urine tests can be beat. Uh, you can go online and you can find a hundred products that will clear out your urine sample. Um, the issue is you typically have to use them 24 hours prior to taking the test and you also have to stop doing the drug. So you can't take the cleanse and keep doing the drug up until the time of the test. And can, so now the report comes back and if it comes in and there's a negative, cause you always have, you have the, Oh, is it going to be positive? And then when the negative comes in, well, let's check the, let's check the creatine levels. Uh, you know, were they, you know, ingesting whatever they were ingesting to, uh, to beat the test. Can you see that? Um, when the results come back? Yes. Uh, you know, Creatinine is something that is standard on any drug test. We're always going to measure the creatinine, which uh, measures the level of dilution of the sample. It's possible to be the urine test by drinking uh, a lot of water prior to the test. Sample, your, your urine uh, essentially gets cleared out and the machines won't detect a substance that's present because it's too dilute. So. What I was just going to say um, is when, when done properly, urine is a wonderful matrix to use. It's inexpensive. It's, it's relatively convenient. Uh, you, you know, we can send someone for a collection almost anywhere in the country. Um, so, so it just has to be done right. Right. You know, if, I've had cases where somebody's come to us and they're saying, well, I've been taking a urine test every week when I go to my program on Thursdays. Okay. I mean, that's a, that's great, <laughs> right. but you know, it's coming on Thursdays. Right. You know, the window of detection of whatever drug it is that you're taking. So they stop a few days ahead of time. Um, when we do random urine programs, we notify the client, the donor, the morning of the day in which they need to take the test. Really, that's the only way to avoid them using some kind of cleanse or, or diluting. They can sure. still dilute their sample, but it minimizes that. Um, so again, when done properly, it's a great matrix. And the, so we've, we've spoken about hair. We've spoken about urine. Um, it's like in the sweat patch, and I've used that in cases. You've recommended that in cases that we've worked together on, um, on both sides. And tell me, um, are there any um, benefits or drawbacks with this with the sweat patch? The sweat patch, and hopefully one day we'll yeah you know we'll be able to see it's a, it's about the size of a nicotine patch for those of us who have worn a nicotine patch it goes on the arm the midriff the back any place where there's not a lot of hair like a big like those big bandage band-aids 
it looks like a bandage. Nobody's going to know what it is. Uh, the beauty of it is that you get 24-7 coverage for up to two weeks. The person, the donor doesn't have to stop what they're doing, go to a collection site, provide a sample. It's extremely cost-effective for the coverage that we're getting. Um, and it's easy. Um, you know, the drawback and, and all of these, all of these different types of tests have pros and they have cons like anything else. The drawback is we don't get a result for two weeks. So we have to wait two weeks. Got it. That could be a lifetime in cases. And there's also, that is pure abstinence, right? Yes. Because if you do anything during that two week window, it's coming up. And there are, you know, I've had this with you involved and I represented the individual who and the adversary was uh, insistent on testing. They wanted abstinence completely. And a lawyer representing the litigant who may be accused of, you know, using substances needs to take the position. Why should that my client uh, be tested when they're not with the child because the child is not in danger. And so can you speak to that? The essence of, of drug addiction, the ex essence of alcoholism, the inability again to moderate once use has started. I've been in this field for 20 years. Um, I've been, I've been involved in this either personally or professionally for the last 25 years. If we have a problem, and I would say certainly some, if not many of my clients, don't have a problem. If there's a problem, we, we, the only thing that I've seen work over 25 years is abstinence. Um, again, if we could moderate, if we could say, you know, I, I, you know, how many times I, I went to the bar and I said, I'm having three drinks tonight and I'd end up in Pittsburgh, right. you know, um, uh, I'm not, I'm not different or unique. Um, that's the, the whole essence of this disease. So, you it know, sounds, I think it's, sorry. I, I, I just think it's, it's, it's very important to get across that, um, moderation was tried long ago right? and it fails miserably for a person that is a drug addict or an alcoholic. Yeah, And I, I think the takeaway on that for the people listening is, listen, if you have a track record and you can show that you are not, you're detesting negative, the test, first of all, over time, the testing most likely is going to go away. And, and then, or you're going to build up the good faith with the other side and the judge to say, okay, they're, they're actually operating in moderation. Um, I guess it's, it, it's all on a fact based, you know, uh, circumstance. These cases are really emotional. There's control issues. There's, you know, I, I, I like to say, you know, you've got, you've got the, the great triumvirate, not necessarily in this order, but money, children, and matters of the heart. There's tragedies, of course, which are tragedies. And then there's the stuff that we deal with every day. 
Um, and these are difficult things. Uh, you're, you're throwing into one situation the three biggest stressors that, that people can have. Um, so, it, you know, it, it kind of speaks to, to the blueberry story I, or the, yeah, the blueberry I analogy I, I give you all the time. Um, if somebody said to you, all you have to do to see your kids anytime you want is not eat blueberries, you're not going within 100 miles of a blueberry. Right. Um, so, you know, the, it's easy to say, well, if it's not a problem, then just do this for several months right. and let's blow this out of the water and make it a non-issue. Um, so many people get wrapped up and I think inexperienced, not only the litigants, they get wrapped up in their emotions, but inexperienced lawyers who think the right thing to do is to deny. And that is the worst thing you could do, especially when the judge who's acting as the role of the parent, uh, you know, their, their ass is on the line. So, you know, let, we're not fucking with this, you know, and uh, I, and that's where your job is extremely vital and um, important to us as all the players in the, in the process. Um, there's, you know, I want to talk about, you know, what you, I think it's important for listeners, whether it's somebody who's thrusting the allegations or dealing with an addiction right now and maybe going through a divorce and thinking, you know, I, they bottomed out and life is never going to be the way it used to be. Can you speak to that? And should, because I, what I really want you to say is the protocols that you put in place, maybe in the beginning, aren't going to be the protocols that ultimately are in place later on down the road? Uh, without a doubt. I mean, these protocols need to be uh, dynamic. We need to be able to change them uh, when it's appropriate. A typical protocol starts with more heavier monitoring um, and usually tapers down over time. The hardest question I ever get asked, and the question to which there really is no good answer, is how long do we do this for? Right. When do we stop? Um, and, and that's a very difficult uh, question to answer because the odds are stacked against us. Um, you know, I haven't had a drink in, in over 20 years. Statistically, I may very well drink again. Right. You know, we're certainly not going to monitor somebody for 20 years. Um, and that's, that's why, you know, monitoring when used as an adjunct to treatment People have people are six times more likely to have long-term abstinence if they are monitored for that first year than people who are just going to treatment alone. Um, so and, go ahead. No, and to that point, the monitoring, while that can taper down, so too can the treatment. Well. I don't know about that. Yes, it certainly gets less intense. Right. Well, I um, mean, like, you know, you have an inpatient, then you have an outpatient, right. okay. then you sure. have an addiction specialist who you go see and maybe a psychiatrist who's helping administer medication. Um, and then that's there for you in case you need something, you know, or need to speak to someone that's like your support structure. So, you know, there's different levels depending on the scenario and depending on over time what transpires. Uh, without a doubt. I mean, it takes uh, people who are successful in recovery 
are never, I shouldn't say never, uh, I haven't seen any cases where they do it alone. Um, and we don't want to let people in. We don't want to let people know, you know, it's typical for uh, somebody who's, nobody knows the whole story. You know, everybody, some people know a little bit of some of this and some of that, but nobody really gets the whole story. Right. Um, so we certainly want to surround ourselves with people who can help us. And that's a very difficult, we've all heard it before. That's, yeah. you know, we're always the last to know. And it's very hard to reach out and say, I can't do this by myself, you know, left to my own devices. Uh, I'm not beating this. Sure. The listener out there, you know, right now, what, what do you say to them, you know, common mistakes or pitfalls that they should uh, be thinking twice about or avoiding? In terms of recovery? In terms of whether it's recovery or they're going through divorce and um, like what you, like the situations that you see in the context of a split and just generally what your advice would be. Uh, you'll like this answer. I tell clients to listen to your attorney. Listen to your attorney. And if they tell you to do something, even though you think you don't need me or a treatment program, if your attorney says this is what you should be doing, uh, do that. You know, part of the hope here, uh, we, we know that denial is a very big part of this, right? Part of the hope is that while they're going through this, something will happen that will, uh, that will give them that, you know, we call it the moment of clarity right. where they're like, you know what? Maybe there is an issue here. You know, if I'm resisting so much, maybe there really is an issue. Maybe it's something I need to look at. Maybe I wouldn't be in this situation if I just, you know, stopped the same behavior over and over and over again ad nauseum and continue to expect things to get better or be different. Sure. What do you say to that person out there that says, I can't take that test because uh, we're dealing with COVID right now and I can't leave my living room couch. Uh, what's your answer to that? Uh, we haven't closed the office for a single day during this, this pandemic. Yes, it makes things more difficult. A lot of the collection sites now require appointments where before you can just walk in uh, and there's only so many spots in a day. Uh, alcoholism. Drug addiction is a fatal, regressive disease. Uh, it doesn't go away. Right. I remember hearing for the first time, in fact, uh, when I was walking into my, I walked into my very first of, of several detoxes, and the woman said to my mother, who was still speaking to me at that time, when Stephen dies, it will say on his gravestone, Stephen died a drug addict. Uh, we don't. We're never cured. Right. You know? Um, and again, we have to, it's a persistent, regular thing. Uh, I used to hate the diabetes analogy. People would say to me, well, if you had diabetes, uh, you take your insulin every day. So you can go to a meeting every day. Um, 
you know, I thought it was a moral issue. I thought there was something morally wrong with me. Um, it took me years, in fact, to buy into the whole disease concept. Mm -hmm. um, and once I did, things got a lot easier. Sure. So I just want to pivot. This has been really, really helpful. And uh, I really appreciate this. Um, I know you have older kids. Mm -hmm. I know you have kids uh, in college. And doing what you do and with the experience that you have and your personal experiences, what's it like having a kid in college, you know, um, and maybe experimenting or um, around other kids that are experimenting? You know, what do you say to those listeners who are in those shoes? I've been talking to my children about my experience. Um, really from when they could begin to understand, obviously very little bits at, at a time. Um, I think as parents, when it comes to issues of drugs and alcohol, uh, we not only have to talk the talk, but walk the walk. Um, I think that that's really the biggest mistake that that parents make sometimes. And, and look, I mean, there's nothing wrong with somebody who's not an alcoholic having a drink at night. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with that. Um, but we have to be honest with them, first of all. Uh, and we have to abide by, uh, if we say, you know, I hear parents all the time, they say, well, I told her if she just called me, and didn't get in the car and drive when she's been, when she's been drinking, uh, there'd be no consequences. Or at least you get one free one. That event happens, and they take the car away, and they right. do, you know, a hundred different things. Um, so we just have to follow through on the things that we say. And we can't talk to a child about the dangers of, uh, of drinking to excess uh, or drinking of, or underage drinking. Uh, and then go out to a restaurant, have five martinis, and get behind the wheel of a car. Right. And, you know, it happens frequently because kids uh, are so perceptive. Sure. And, you know, sure, they hear what we say, but they're watching. Yeah. And they pick up everything. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's the, the most important thing is to uh, live by your own rules. Yeah. And open that channel of communication from a very, very young age. Uh, because it's, it's, it's so important. I think that at some point, and I, I'm sure that the, one day, one day they'll, they will listen to this and there will come a point where, you know, one of my daughters is going to get drunk. He's going right. to, you know, start drinking or, do, or doing this or doing that. Now they're very, very intelligent kids. They, they know, uh, they know because I've told them over and over again, this is in your blood and there's a, big genetic component to this. Um, it's going to happen. You know, the, the, the issue is going to be, how am I going to respond? Right. Am I going to behave in a way in the fashion in which I told them I would, which would be, you can talk to me about anything and it will be okay. We'll work through it together. Yeah. You know, I, I get emotional saying sure. this, you know, talking about this. Um, Partially because I do know so well how dangerous this can be when there's an issue, 
when there's a problem uh, and how utterly lucky yeah. I am uh, to have come through it and seen the other side as of this moment today. Well, I have to say um, it has been truly an honor to have you here. And I really, um, I thank you for sharing your personal experiences and I thank you for um, your expertise. It's not always what I've wanted to hear, uh, in the, you know, in, in the situation representing my clients, but you're a straight shooter and you're honest and your goal is just to help the people involved. And for that, I thank you. Um, one last question. We can keep doing this for hours. Um, uh, on the lighter note, uh, I'm a sneaker guy. Uh, I ask all my guests, uh, what's your favorite sneaker? You know, this is really going to disappoint you. It's all um, good. I, I don't recall. I think I, I bought a pair of Nikes at some point. <laughs> but I'm really partial to the old white Stan Smith tennis yes. shoes. Remember those? I love those. I love them. Awesome. They're just comfortable. I get it. Yeah. You're an Adidas guy. Yeah. It's all good. Yep. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me.